Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Today is one of my favorite times of the year. The reason is, of course, is today is Christmas Eve. Tomorrow is Christmas, of course, but tonight is, of course, the night before Christmas. When I was a child, I remember uh, that this time was so great because when I woke up in the morning, I would wake up to the smell of mom cooking quiche and, and biscuits. We'd have some cantaloupe with those biscuits as well. And I remember that we would have presents underneath the tree. Let's be honest. I went for the presents first before the quiche, but hey, I remember that. And I had trouble this night going to sleep, but not a lot of trouble waking up. I remember my dad was working second and third shifts, so I knew better than to wake dad up. And so what that meant was I would go, my brother's nine years older than me, I would go and I'd go wake him up. That way, you know, if it's too early, he could let me know and I'd let him, you know, I'm the younger child. So I would let him get in trouble, him go and wake mom and dad up if it was five in the morning, three in the morning, whatever the case may be. But I love this day because what this time meant was this time was filled, and it is filled, with so much anticipation. We're going to go to bed tonight. We're going to wake up in the morning. And Christmas is finally here. Are you anticipating anything this morning? I wonder. Not only for Christmas, not only for the new year that's coming, but are you this morning filled, not with anxiety... But are you this morning, maybe some of you are filled with anxiety, Christmas is tomorrow by the way, but hopefully you're filled this morning with all types of joyous anticipation. Now let me let you know where we are at Oxford Baptist Church. Of course you see this beautiful background behind us here. We're in week five of a seven part series known as Christmas and the Temple and this morning we've finally made it to the time where I invite you to take your Bible and go to Luke chapter 2. Now, you've been waiting for this. I know I've been mentioning Luke chapter 2 for the past four weeks now. Now it's week five. We finally get to that moment of anticipation where some of you finally, like, man, you've been talking about Luke 2. When we're finally going to get into Luke 2, we'll take your Bible to turn into uh, Luke chapter 2. And when you see Luke chapter 2, we're going to find Jesus in a particular place. We're going to find him in the temple. What we've been doing these past few weeks is we've been trying to answer the question, why the most significant life of all, why the life of Jesus, why did he choose to live his life in the shadow of the temple? Now, I know that we've done this before, and, you know, hopefully this is not uh, nauseating for you. I keep repeating the same thing. There's a reason why the pastor keeps repeating the same thing. He wants the congregation to learn And you learn by repetition. So I want you to see what I believe is Luke's intention. He intends to paint Christ's portrait in a certain way. He intends to show Christ in the shadow of the temple. So look what happens in Luke chapter 1. Flip over just a couple of pages. And you see we first we start uh, where Luke introduces in the first four verses. He talks about he's writing to Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And then we go right away to the birth of John the Baptist, and he appears to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And, of course, Zechariah is in the temple. So right away, Luke takes us to the temple. Then we flip ahead, and we see, of course, the birth of Jesus being foretold. We see 
uh, Mary visiting Elizabeth, all the rest. And then we see John the Baptist being born, and we quickly see the, uh, Christ being born. And right away in chapter 22, we see him in the temple. And, of course, Luke gives us this only glimpse of the life of Jesus as a boy. And guess where Jesus is? He's in the temple. And then if we were to flip forward, we don't have to do this today, but if we were to flip forward all the way as Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, he spends most of his time in and around the temple. And it's because of all of those reasons, I believe, that what Luke's doing is he's, he's telling us something as we read the Bible. Remember, Luke is the authority. He wants us to learn something. We don't have to teach Luke anything. Luke has everything to teach us because he was there with Jesus there with people that knew Jesus. And so Luke is trying to tell us something about Jesus. And he's saying that if we want to understand Jesus, if we really want to understand Christmas, then we have to understand the temple. So what we've done to this point is we have labored to seek to understand the temple so that we can have a better grasp on Jesus. I'm really not interested if you know about the temple, but what I am interested in is that we together learn about the most significant life of all, and that is the life of Jesus Christ. And so will you mind joining me in Luke chapter 2, and let's begin in verse 22 to look at this solitary event where Jesus is in the temple. We will read today from Luke 2, through verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord. When the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we are grateful. Grateful that we have such an occasion today to come together and exalt the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Please, our Father, be with us today. Give us illumination according to your Spirit as we seek to know you through your Word. 
in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Now let me ask you a question. What was it that made this day so significant? What was it that made this day so special? I believe that there were three things that made this day so special. There was anticipation, there was expectation, and then there was realization. Anticipation, expectation, and realization. Think about it. In this moment, the magnificent temple and all of its splendor and all of its glory and all of its gold and brilliance and all of its glorious heights, in that moment, the temple is dwarfed by a devout Jew, a dedicated husband, and a virgin mother holding a baby who himself is hope, joy, love, peace, forgiveness, all that we could ever hope for, and all that we could ever need. We come to this moment. What makes this moment so significant is that all of history has been leading towards and hinging on the birth of the baby in Luke chapter 2. So I want us to understand the best we can by the help of God, the Holy Spirit, the astounding significance of this moment. And to do that, I've got the message together gift wrap for you in two points, two truths, that if you have a pen this morning, I'd encourage you to write those down. I want us to understand the significance of the moment. So number one, I want you to learn this morning that Jesus is the long-expected Savior. Look, Look at the way that Luke writes right away in verse 22. Look at how this is emphasized and repeated. Luke wants us to know something right away, that what Jesus is doing is fulfilling Scripture. Look at what it says. The time came according to the law of Moses. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. So, uh, and then in verse 27, according to the custom of the law. Things that are repeated, Luke's just not saying that for the sake of no reason. He's saying that so that he wants us to understand something. This Jesus, this event is fulfilling Scripture. So not only do we learn that, but we also learn something right away about this guy named Simeon. Now, isn't it sort of strange? We can just read the event, but hopefully we get into the moment. Here they are. They've already gone through all of this major things. They've seen shepherds come and and made all the way and the star rising, all these kind of things that they've been through. Then all of a sudden they get to the temple, and here's this man coming. He says, hey, can I hold your baby? Who are you? What are you? So all of these things are going on. We learn something right away about this man by the name of Simeon. Look what the Bible says about him. Simeon was righteous. See that? And then he was devout. So you say, well, what in the world made him righteous and devout? Well, the text tells us he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Oh, and by the way, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, I'm not going to speak much about the Holy Spirit today. You'll have to come back next week to learn the significance of the Holy Spirit, but that's important as well. So, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What on earth does that mean? Think about it. When you console someone, what do you do? You comfort them in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of disappointment. 
So here Simeon is, he's waiting, waiting, waiting for the comfort of Israel. Now here at Oxford Baptist Church, we believe that every word is inspired. We believe that every word of the Bible matters. And so by using that one word, Luke masterfully tells us something. In that one word, Luke tells us that this baby whom Simeon is holding, this baby is the hope of Israel. This baby is not just the hope of Israel. This baby is the hope of the world. Now, Simeon was righteous. Simeon was devout because he lived his life with a hope-filled expectation that God would do what he said that he would do to bring comfort to the world. And how did God say that he was going to bring comfort to the world? Well, we go all the way back to the pages of Genesis. We learned that the way that God was going to bring comfort to the world was through the seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Now, where on earth did Simeon get such an idea? Well, of course, from Genesis. But not just from Genesis, from every page of Scripture. Now, don't miss this. To just compound the irony of the situation, Simeon is holding this baby Jesus standing in the shadow of a huge structure, the temple. And that huge structure, the temple, served as a witness. It was planted there on the earth by the people of God, whom God gave the blueprints of His plans for the rest of the world to fill the earth with the knowledge of Himself. God gave them the blueprints. And so He's standing in the shadow of a huge structure whose existence served as a witness To the day when God would save the world. By looking into the face of Jesus. In the shadow of the temple. Simeon was able to understand. That something more significant. Something greater than the temple was there. So that word consolation. Is a very important word. That word consolation. Like I said is. Is important for us to know because what Luke's directing us, even though it's not a direct reference, I think it's an echo. There's a lot of history that's here. You see, Luke uses the word consolation to take our minds back to a certain point in Israel's history, a certain point in time. We see that he is waiting, he's longing for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. And how did he have any such idea that there was even coming a consolation, that there was even coming a comfort? Why? Because this word reminds us of a particular prophet by the name of Isaiah. Now, you know Isaiah. We all know Isaiah. You can take your bulletin and turn to the front of the bulletin. And on the inside of the bulletin, we know Isaiah, especially this time of the year. Isaiah, he was the one who wrote, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear you a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Isaiah also says... For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now those passages are, they're dear to us this time of year. We relish those passages, we've memorized those passages 
The reason that they're so important is because what they do is they highlight the overall meaning of Isaiah. They're not just taken from Isaiah as if what Isaiah says around those verses don't matter. Those verses are taken to show us the meaning of Isaiah. So here's a question for us all this morning. What on earth is the book of Isaiah about? What's it about? It's about Jesus. Now listen, I know when the preacher asks you that question, you're not supposed to say Jesus because it's probably something more deep than that or deeper than that. But I don't mean to go all Sunday school on you, you know, where the answer to everything is Jesus. But that's the truth. Isaiah is about Jesus. And you say, how can you say that Isaiah is about Jesus? Because Jesus told us about it after his resurrection. You can read the end of Luke. And he's, he's on the road to Emmaus. And he is showing how every scripture points to himself. So everything is about Jesus. And so our task then is to determine not what we mean when we say that Isaiah is about Jesus, but our task is to determine what Isaiah means when he writes about salvation that's coming through a virgin-born son who's also going to suffer. So what does Isaiah mean? So let me tell you, by this one word, consolation, Luke is taking us back to the hope of Simeon, taking us back to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, if you've ever looked at Isaiah, Isaiah is a massive book. Isaiah is 66 chapters. The book of Isaiah is divided into three sections, and this is important. Uh, The first section is chapters 1 through 39. That's called book 1. Book 2 is chapters 40 through 55, and then the third section is chapters 56 through 66. You say, why is that important? Here's the reason. Because the second section of Isaiah, listen carefully. And what's the second section? Chapters 40 through 55. 40 through 55. The second section in the book of Isaiah is known as the book of comfort. As the book of consolation. So here's Simeon. And how, of all the different ways that Luke could describe Simeon, you know, you've probably seen a picture of Simeon, he's got a long beard and a turban, you know. We don't know any of that stuff. We have no idea. What do we know about Simeon? We know that Simeon was devout, righteous, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Luke chose to tell us what we need to know about Simeon. And what he chose to tell us about Simeon was Simeon was reading his Bible in light of a coming Messiah who would save the world. Luke tells us that he's righteous and devout because he is reading Isaiah in light of a Christ who is coming. And after he sees this Christ that's coming, he says, Lord, now I can die. I've seen salvation. I've seen the Lord. The second part of that book, I want to say it again so that you'll write it down and look at it later. Chapters 40 through 55 is known as the book of comfort or the book of consolation. Why comfort? Why consolation? Here's the reason. Because the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are filled full of disappointment. Filled full of disappointment. The first... 39 chapters of Isaiah is is filled with all these prophecies of God coming to judge, to bring judgment upon the house of Israel because they've been disobedient to God. 
Isaiah writes to a people who are not fulfilling the mandate to be lovers of God. Now, let, let me show you that real quickly. What did God do? Remember, Simeon standing in the shadow of the temple. God built a system to deal with sinfulness. And what was that system that God built to deal with sinfulness? The sacrificial system. The sacrificial system. This is why Mary and Joseph come in verse 22. They are coming for their purification. Jesus is too, according to the law of Moses. So they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They're dealing with all of these things because of the system that's in place to deal with sinfulness. And the system that's in place to deal with sinfulness is sacrifice. But here's the Bible picture. The people took advantage of this way of thinking. And what they thought was important was the sacrificial system was only to clean them up externally. While all along inside they had stony and and calloused hearts. So what did they do? They sinned, they sacrificed, they sinned and they sacrificed. They thought, hey, this is great. I can just sin and sacrifice. I can go to penance. I can just go confess to the priest, whatever the case may be. Go and sin, sacrifice. As long as I sacrifice, I'm okay. So I'll go to church on Sunday, live like I want to on Monday. It'll be all right because Sunday's coming. I can get it all done. And I can, you know, sweep it under the rug. So the people of Israel, they sin, they sacrifice, they sin, they sacrifice, they sin, they sacrifice. All to the point where God says, enough. You've missed the whole point. The whole point isn't about you feeling good about yourself. It's about me feeling good about you. The whole point is not you cleaning up externally. The whole point is for you to have a transformed heart. A heart that loves the Lord God with everything that you are. So God says enough. And listen to the way that Isaiah, this is important. Listen, Isaiah begins his entire book, all 66 chapters. He begins by declaring the system that God had put in place of sacrifice. The temple is ineffective. Listen to what he says. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 10 and 11. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom. You people of Gomorrah. Now, If you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah. If God calls you Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not saying I'm so proud of you. God calling his people Sodom and Gomorrah, he is saying, you've blown it. It's like Peter receiving the word from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You don't want Jesus to call you Satan. You don't want God to call you the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, because we know what God did with Sodom and Gomorrah. He buried them under ash. Listen to what God says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. Just imagine that. Here you are, the people of God. You thought that you had it made. Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. Then all of a sudden God comes and puts a block stop on you. Now what? Now, what are you going to do to deal with your sinfulness? So if the only system to deal with sinfulness is sacrifice, and God tells them that He is unpleased with their sacrifice, then what on earth are they to do? Listen, here's the point of Isaiah. Here's the point of the whole Bible. The people are incapable of saving themselves. 
You and I are incapable of amassing enough righteousness to save ourselves. Instead, what do we need? We need a Savior. And I love Isaiah. This salvation that's coming is the hope of the world. Listen, listen to how quickly Isaiah anticipates the coming salvation of the Lord. So that was verse 10 and 11. Seven verses later, after God says, don't even sacrifice anymore, I'm tired of it. Seven verses later, listen to how quickly God moves to hope. He does this all through Scripture, all through Scripture. He moves quickly from hopelessness to hope. He doesn't leave His people without hope. Seven verses later, listen to what the Lord says. Come now. You see the invitation? Instead of pushing them away, God says, come. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The question that Isaiah answers is how on earth do scarlet sins become white as snow? Isaiah, especially in the book of Comfort, chapters 40 through 55, you know what it does? It tells us. It tells us the way Isaiah tells us that scarlet sins become white as snow through the shedding of the red blood of the spotless Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, by His wounds, our healing comes. The hope of Isaiah is a future hope. And here, Simeon is waiting in the shadow of the temple, waiting, the Bible says, for the comfort of Israel to come. The comfort of Israel only comes through salvation and he grabs the baby Jesus and he says, I have looked into the eyes and I have seen Yeshua. I have seen the salvation of the Lord. But the hope said of Isaiah is a future hope. And what God says, He says to anchor history in hope. He says what He says. Hundreds of years before Jesus, so that the people would live with anticipation, so that the people would live with His hope, so that their lives, so that history itself would be anchored not in hopelessness, but so that we could be able to say, tomorrow is coming. His mercies are new with a new dawn. Tomorrow, I can't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be a better day than this day. Why? Because God has declared it so. But by the time God sends the prophet Isaiah Things have almost reached the point of no hope for Israel. By the time God sends Isaiah, things are reaching a boiling point until finally in Ezekiel chapter 10, which is a prophecy after Isaiah. In Ezekiel chapter 10, you can write that down and read about it later. In Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. What's the big deal about the temple? It's not the sacrifices. It's the Shekinah glory of God manifested among His people. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, God finally says, I've had enough of this. And in Ezekiel 10, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. The presence of God leaves His people. In Isaiah it opens with the Lord declaring that He no longer delights in the sacrifices offered in the temple. And in Ezekiel, the Lord abandons the temple altogether. In a quick history of the people, the temple is destroyed. Israel is taken into captivity. 
by Babylon. The temple is destroyed. And of course, God allows another temple to be built. But even still, it's not the same. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 3. It's not the same. Those who are there who saw the new temple, they remember the old temple and they weep because it's just not the same. And now we have Simeon, a devout Jew, an old, devout Jew who is waiting for the comfort that Isaiah promised. And don't miss this. Simeon is standing in the shadow of the temple and waiting for the comfort of the world to come, the blessing of the world to come through Israel. The story of the Bible, listen, has never been about the temple. The story of the Bible will never be about the temple. I know people are waiting for a third temple to be built. It's never about the temple. Instead, it's it's about what the temple is intended to portray. The temple is a picture of one day when the presence of the Lord will Fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Simeon, listen, Simeon is there. He is holding the God who has the whole world in his hands. Simeon is holding Emmanuel in his hands. Simeon is holding God with us in his hands. The current temple that Simeon is standing in the shadow of is without the glory. The glory of the Lord departed. This is what's so significant about the way that Luke opens in Luke chapter 1, where Zechariah is is in the temple. Zechariah heard the voice of the Lord for the first time after 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting. 400 years. Years and finally, an old man takes a baby in his arms and says, Now I can die in shalom. Now I can die in peace because I have seen Yeshua. I have seen the salvation of Yahweh. And what was it? What was it about Jesus, I wonder, that that caused Simeon to rejoice? What was it? Was there something special about him? Oh, of course there was. He's Jesus. Well, what was it about Jesus? Did he have this halo around him like we see in pictures? Did he glow? You know, what, what was it about him? Well, he was a baby, of course. He cried when he was hungry. He wiggled. He, he cooed. He He did everything that a a normal baby would do, but this baby was Emmanuel. This baby was God with us. This baby was Jesus. This baby with tender skin whom the rough hands of Simeon held would one day save the world. And so how in the world would a baby save the world? And this is our second point this morning. Jesus saves through His life. How does He save the world? Through His life. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. And so this Jesus, He has come into a world full of darkness as the light of the world. He has come into a world filled with chains with the key for every captive. He has come in a world full of sorrow to dry every tear. In a world full of longing, He has come to bring 
joy. Jesus has come to restore the presence of God amongst men. And He does so in the most unbelievable fashion. By becoming man. By God becoming man. Listen. By uniting Himself with us so that He could unite us with Himself. Now, there's another gospel writer that you're probably familiar with, and some say that even though we oftentimes go to Luke to read the Christmas story, because Luke has all these glorious details about angels and wise men and shepherds and all these beautiful details, but there's another gospel writer who also tells the Christmas story. His name is John. Now, John goes into, some say, not as much detail. Others say, well, he goes into more detail because he begins before there was time. But listen to the way that John tells the Christmas story. Listen to John 1.14, probably one of the most significant passages in all the Bible. Listen to what John says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Don't miss this. And we have seen His what? Glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you've gone over there to John chapter 1, that's good. Because if you have, then there's one word that I want you to highlight. And that's that word, dwelt. Do you see that? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, dwelt, is the same word the Old Testament uses for tabernacle what's he telling us he's telling us that jesus has tabernacled amongst us jesus has templed amongst us now what's significant about the tabernacle what's significant about the temple there's only one thing that's significant about them and that's the presence of god jesus is our emmanuel Through the incarnation, listen, through the incarnation, that is, through the Word becoming flesh, God has made His dwelling place amongst mankind. So what does this mean? It means that all that was lost in the garden when the Lord God walked with mankind is now being regained in the incarnation. In the incarnation of the Son, all that was lost is now being regained in God being born. How was he born? Offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Mild he lays his glory by. Born no more that men may die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us second birth. Look at what Simeon says. Look at verse 30. My eyes have seen what? Your salvation. Now notice what Simeon says. He didn't say, I've seen the one who's going to bring salvation. He didn't say that. Simeon didn't say, I've seen the worker of salvation. He says, my eyes have seen your Salvation. He looked into the infant eyes of God Himself and said, I have seen salvation. Here's the point. Listen carefully. And this is, this is so good. 
Listen. Jesus secured our salvation the moment He became flesh. Your salvation was secure the moment that He became flesh. Listen. You say, what about the cross? Well, it's not just a cross that saves, is it? It's God on a cross. You say, what about the resurrection? Are you making less of the resurrection? By no means. It's not just an empty tomb that saves. It's God risen from the grave that saves. You can never separate who Jesus is from what He has done. And this is what makes Christmas so extraordinary. And I hope that it is this extraordinary in your house. And I hope that it becomes more extraordinary in my house. And that we celebrate Christmas this way for the rest of our lives. Without ceasing to be what He was, He became what He was not. Without ceasing to be what He was, He became what He was not. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The perfect union of God and man in our one Lord Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. Two natures, God and man, united in one person, our one Lord, Jesus Christ. And the reason that the Son became flesh without ceasing to be what He was, became what He was not. The reason that He did that is for one reason. For us. For us. You know why we give Christmas gifts to one another you some say well isn't it all about jesus and listen i know you can go overboard with christmas gifts and all these kind of things. i'm not interested in none of that stuff but i'm just simply saying the reason why we give gifts to one another is because god has given us the greatest gift he ever could and we celebrate that some of you overboard that's okay because there's no way that you can outdo what he did so don't even try In His generosity, He freely gave of Himself. He became what we are so that He could make us what He is. That doesn't mean that we become God. It means that we become God's apostrophe S. He now belongs to us and we belong to Him. And what did John say? John says we have seen His glory. What does he mean? You know, John, he knows the Bible. John knows that in Ezekiel 10, the glory of the Lord left the temple. So John saying, we have seen His glory. The angels singing, Gloria. They're saying the same thing. This is the way that God brings His presence back amongst men. You have to come back next week and you'll see the veil of the temple at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. You know what that means? It means now there's no separation between us and Him. Because He's brought us to Himself in the most extraordinary fashion, taking on flesh so that by that flesh He could shed His precious blood for you and me so that He could die. So that He could take that flesh that was wounded, that sacred head that was wounded, and raise it back to life again. Also that when the day that we close our eyes, we can close our eyes with the expectation, with the anticipation that the next time we open our eyes, we will behold Him. He secured that for us. When did He secure it? The moment that He became flesh. And old Simeon, he knows this too. 
And as he is holding Jesus in the shadow of the temple, look at what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. For my eyes have seen Jesus. My eyes have seen Yeshua. My eyes have seen your salvation. A salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. This salvation is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. When God instructed His people to do what they could do, to prepare for salvation by building a temple, taking stones, taking gold, precious metals, putting it all together, raising a structure to the sky, burning incense, burning offerings, instructing them what to wear, how to come, when to stay away, all of these things, instructing His people to prepare for salvation. Listen, God was up to something greater. God did what mankind was incapable of doing by fashioning a body for the eternal Son in the womb of a virgin daughter of Eve named Mary. This seed of woman would finally crush the head of the serpent. And even though his head would be bruised, he will fill the earth with the triumph of his victory by vanquishing evil forever. This is the story of Christmas. And this is what Christmas has to do with the temple. Now let me ask you, would you be disappointed? Even though some of you, you don't want your husband to get you anything or your girlfriend, whoever, you don't want, you don't want a gift. Some of you ladies say the same thing. By the way, men, if your woman has said that, don't believe her. It's a trap. Don't believe it. Would you be disappointed? Some of you right now are gassing up the car to go wherever you go. I understand. Believe me. I understand. But would you be disappointed if you woke up on Christmas to find no gifts? All the anticipation that you have. Even though you don't have that wish list, everybody knows you've got the wish list. No gifts. Let me tell you something. On the authority of God's Word, who has revealed Himself in concrete means through history, through material means, by taking on flesh. It's not just some idea of ethereal that we celebrate. The reason we have burning candles here today is is to remind us that if I do like this too long, I'm going to get burnt. He has revealed Himself in a real way to us. This is why we celebrate with, with real, real flowers and all the rest. Because we're, we're celebrating something. This is true. It's real. We have real water that we baptize. It's not fake water. Why? Because God has chosen to reveal Himself in real means. Because He's a real God. And He's going to redeem this world in a real way. And let me tell you, on the authority of His Word, who has revealed Himself, who has broken time with Himself, with Christ, there is no way that Christmas could ever be disappointing. You say, why is that? Here's the reason. God has given us the greatest gift that He could ever give us. You know what He's given us? He's given us Himself. 
He's given us Himself. Yes, He's given us Jesus. But what does this mean? It means that He has given us Himself. How do we know that we won't be disappointed? Listen, here's the reason. The baby in the manger, He grew up. And He grew up to have those precious hands pierced by nails. Those beautiful, tiny feet were driven through with spikes that held Him to a cross. That precious brow that Simeon probably kissed, that no doubt received a bunch of kisses from his mother, was plunged by a crown of thorns. And that side that his, his earthly father, Joseph, held so close to him as they walked down the street, that side one day would feel the cold still of a soldier's spear as his side was riven and his blood was spilt. This baby on this day that was tenderly laid in a manger, would one day be lifelessly taken down from a cross and laid in a cold slab in a tomb. And that day would be another time of longing, another moment of anxious anticipation as those closest to Him remembered what He said, but then wondered if what He said was true. They could hear His voice Tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll raise it up. One day passed. Two days passed. But then came the morning of day three. Because He has risen, we who know this Jesus that has risen can testify with Him that because He has done what He said that He would do, we can believe everything that He said And if He says He's coming again to receive us unto Himself, we can believe it. No matter what the world may say, we can hold on to that hope because it's not so much us holding it, it's Him holding us. There's no disappointment with Jesus. Instead, the opposite is true. There is every expectation we could ever imagine. It is all met by Jesus. And this Jesus has given us a song to sing. Would you stand with me right now? The song that now, because of Jesus, we get to sing goes something like this. Sing it with me. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mount He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Now here's the question this morning. The question that's just between you and God. Because He knows. We can memorize that song, but are you able to sing that song and mean it? Are you able to sing that song? And as you sing that song, is your heart warmed and stirred with affections for God? Do you believe what you sing? Do you believe this book? 
I mean really believe it. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you for loving us. And thank you, Lord God, that you know every heart here. And it's my prayer that every heart here is secure in Christ, that they're able to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at oxfordbaptistchurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.